So as Greg said, last week we started 1 Samuel, and uh, I was excited to bring that to you to share uh, the energy and the excitement I have for studying it. And I am just wondering, has anybody started to read it? Put your hand up. Look at that. Look at that. That's great. That's great. It's so encouraging to me. Some of you expressed a little concern that we might be in it for a little a little long because I said we'd go to August. So I just want to assure you, you're going to be okay. All right. So first of all, we'll go through the first 15 chapters between now and the end of March. Then we'll take a very brief break for resurrection because Easter is right around the corner there. Following that, we're going to take another break and move into a series on the church where we'll have sermons about, about um, leadership, about serving, about our purpose statement. And then we'll get back into the next section, which is 1 Samuel 16 through 23. 23 ends with David in exile, running away from Saul. And so we're going to take another break at that point and look at four of the Psalms that David wrote while he was in exile. And then we will go ahead and finish up 1 Samuel. We'll be done by the end of August. And there'll be a couple of other interjected sermons in there as well. And so uh, I hope, hope you're excited. And are you ready to get to work? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start with praying. Oh, Lord, I want to just thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. You gave us your word. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. You gave it to us. And we have the privilege of studying it and through studying it, getting to know you, who you are, what you are like, how you love us, how much you want relationship with us, and all you did to make that relationship happen. Lord, we come to you asking for you to just speak to us. Speak to me, speak through me, speak to every one of us here. Open up our clogged ears, soften our hardened hearts, Lord. We need to hear you today. We look forward to hearing from you. Speak now, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Prayer changes nothing. Prayer changes nothing. That is a quote from a famous 20th century preacher, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Prayer changes nothing. We're going to read 1 Samuel now and see if he is correct in his assessment. We don't have it up on the screen for you today. I'd like you to open up your Bibles or point your electronic devices to 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 1. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. Follow along. I'll give verse numbers to help you stay, stay on track if you're using a different version. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. Well, there's a problem. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord, the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. 
When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I always hear that line in a good New York Jewish accent. Am I not better to you than ten sons? <laughs> Don't you hear that? Then Hannah rose after eating, and you know, I hope that's not on the recording. Let's <laughs> scratch that. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now, right there, I just, we're not really going to talk about that. That is called a Nazarite vow. Basically, what it means is that she was saying, my son will be dedicated to the Lord's work all the days of his life. We can get more into that vow and what it means and how that happened. But for now, just know that she was dedicating Samuel to, or her son, to the Lord. Verse 12, now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As Hannah as for Hannah, she was praying in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. There's a little play on words here. I have not poured out wine for myself, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Verse 16 do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Another play on words there, the, the name Hannah means favor or grace. And so she's saying, let your maidservant Hannah find favor. Let, let me, my name means favor, let me find favor in your sight. Verse 19, then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. We're going to study this passage today by looking at three of the characters, and we will begin with Elkanah. Elkanah 
We don't know very much about him. It starts out by saying there was a certain man named Elkanah, and it's pretty significant because he's just a certain man. Elkanah was really not an anybody. He wasn't a, a, a known character. We know very little about him. Just a few generations back of ancestry. And other than that, there was nothing special other than he was just an ordinary guy. And he lived in the town of Ramatham, Zophim. And later on, even in the passage we read, they will shorten that name to just Rama. You'll see that he lived in the town of Rama. In the New Testament, we know this town as Arimathea. You've heard of Joseph of Arimathea. So that's, that's the same place. Hannah had two, or sorry, Elkanah had two wives. Hannah, who had no children, was his first wife. Elkanah, his second wife, had many sons and daughters. And we know that Elkanah was a morally good man. He stood out among his generation as a man of good morals. So we know he was a spiritual man. He was a spiritual leader. He took his family to the, to the temple, which was really a tabernacle at this point, uh, yearly. And the word yearly might even mean several times a year at this point. And as the Jews were, were commanded to come three times a year to the holy place. And uh, he was also a, a loving man. He loved his family. But he had two wives. He had two wives. Polygamy was an everyday fact in Israel. And in fact, many men had more than one wife. And even, they had this even though it was out of line with God's direct desire. God himself in Genesis said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. All of the nouns in that are singular. There's a reason for that because God planned it to be one woman, one man for life. That was his plan. Polygamy was not a part of his plan. So we have to take a detour and ask the question, why did God allow it? Why did so many of our patriarchs in the Old Testament have more than one wife? Why did he allow that? So the question really comes to this, whether God allows something or approves of something. Does God allow it or does he approve it? So we know that God allows sin to take place, though he doesn't approve it. Just another example of this, we know the Ten Commandments, it says, do not lie, do not bear false witness, but we know that, that the Jews lied, just like we lie today. God didn't zap them with interventive punishment immediately when that happened, right? They still lived. He allowed them to sin, but then they had to live within the consequences of that sin. Whatever came about from their lie, they would have to live with that. It's the same way with, with polygamy. Now, what I, I do want to say here about this God allowing and God approving is this does not minimize the sovereignty of God. In fact, it magnifies it. Because think of it this way. God's will will prevail in spite of sin. He never sins, we sin, but our sin will never thwart God from fulfilling his plan for individuals or his plan for mankind. And we will see that in this account. So we see that though sin sometimes is so strong that we can hardly resist it, it's nothing to God. He will do his will in spite of human sin. So while God allowed polygamy Every time polygamy is described in the Bible, it is rife with, 
with sin. It is a seedbed for sin. It is rife with problems and trouble and sadness, and uh, it's never a good thing. They had redefined marriage. God intended it for, for, to be one man and one woman for life. They redefined it to be many women. We do that today, don't we? We have, we have polygamy, we have pornography, we have adultery, we have homosexuality. None of that is God's plan. Now, he does not approve of any of those. He does allow man to make that choice, though. And then they live within the lack of blessing because they're not following that. That's what happens to us when we do not follow the Lord in his commands. God intended for it to be one man and one woman for life. That was his plan. So what are we to say about Elkanah? We say that he was a morally good man, but we have to admit that he was a child of his time. He had made some compromises in his life. One of them was his marriage. And we have to take a lesson from this because it's very easy to make concessions to our culture at the expense of the word of God. Putting the word of God aside in order to accommodate something we would like to do to fit into our culture. There are areas in all of our lives that we have to do that. I don't know of any polygamous, are there any polygamous? Don't raise your hand, I don't wanna know. But there are no doubt areas in our lives that God wants us to come under submission to him. He is to be Lord of every part, of every area. If we were a house, every room, every closet needs to be under his lordship. So maybe, maybe the call for you today in this sermon is to examine your own heart. Let's think about this. Is God really over, Lord, and ruling over your marriage? Is he overseeing your choice of boyfriend or girlfriend? Or is he approving of how you act with one another? Is God delighting in the way I handle my finances? Does he give his, his blessing upon the way I use my tongue? Let me put it this way. Does he smile when I gossip about somebody else or look to smear their reputation? Does God, does God give his, his approval for the way I use media or entertainment? All of these things, all of these areas are to come under his lordship. If there's anything that we're holding back or hiding back, he cannot give his approval. He will allow our sinful choices. But we don't want to have to live with the consequences of those sinful choices, and God certainly doesn't want us to live in the consequences of those sinful choices. So our call this morning, for one, is to examine our hearts and invite Jesus into the examination room. Lord, look at me. Look at my heart. Is there something that is out of line with you? I want to put it under his lordship. Let him really rule it the way he is meant to because then I know I will be under the approval of his blessing and that's where I want to be.
I want to, to just take a moment before we go to another character here and say one thing about this. Elkanah, as I said, was just a, a certain man. And he had a dysfunctional family. His family was dysfunctional. And yet, God in his sovereignty is responding to Hannah's prayer, her cry for a child, and God is going to, to give them that child. And what's so significant is that he's gonna break through and bring joy into their life. But even more than that, he is so sovereign that he will break through this plain, ordinary, sinful family and change redemptive history. Because from this point on, Samuel will be born, and Samuel will be the one, will be the one to dedicate King David out of whose line of kings will come the Messiah. And salvation will come to the human race because of what takes place in what we just read today. Salvation will come, forgiveness of sins. So even though there's sin involved here, God will sovereignly work his plan. It's, he's not gonna allow sin to stop him from that. He will work his plan, he will bring it about. And, and the, the, the sin that separates us from God, the dysfunction between God and us because of our sin, is gonna be healed because Jesus Christ came. He came and he called people to himself. And, and he will bring redemption in spite of human sin because he's, he's sovereign. He will bring redemption to heal human sin because he is loving. That's the God who we are dealing with, who we're talking about today. Today, if you don't know that God, he wants to know you. He wants your heart. He's saying, come under my lordship. Get out from over there where there's no blessing come under my lordship and experience new life through Jesus Christ, our redeemer, because he brings salvation through this whole story that we're talking about this morning. Well, let's move on. We're going to look at Penina. Now, I, I don't like Penina. I, I mean, you, you read that story and, and you just think, I dislike her. She's, she's just a nasty woman. But let's just give her, give her a chance for a moment. Penina was Elkanah's second wife. He loved Hannah, but Hannah couldn't have children. And so he went and chose a second wife, somebody who would be fertile. And he got Penina who bore him many sons. But she was his second choice. And she lived with that. And even at the time of the sacrifice, Hannah's not even eating, but he gives her a double portion of food while Penina just gets one portion. So Elkanah is just making this more and more obvious that he favors Hannah, and she's living within that. The problem for Penina is that she allows her emotions to rule her actions. Instead of submitting her emotions to the Lord, she's allowing her feelings, her hatred, her, her banishment, her, her rejection from her husband to make her act out on other people. And we see this. So she, what she does is she starts, she starts abusing Hannah because of something Hannah had no control over. Hannah couldn't control whether or not she had children. 
And Penina just kept, kept it up, kept it up, kept it up. Look at what it says about her. It says that she was Hannah's rival. It says that she provoked Hannah severely, and it says that it went on year after year, and it's that same word that could mean not just once a year, but repeated over and over and over and over. She was relentless in her poor treatment of Hannah. She was abusing her. She was a bully. And you know, our prejudice is like that. When we mistreat somebody because of skin color or because of financial status or because of what church they go to or what church they don't go to because of, of whatever. When we do that, we are being like Penina and not submitting our feelings to the Lord. We are allowing our feelings to control us. Oh, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, we must be careful in this. Church is a place where this is so dangerous, where we express things that come from our sinful hearts to others and hurt people who are a part of our family, people who Jesus died for. The person sitting next to you, Jesus died for them whether or not you like them, whether or not you like that he died for them. Now, church is to be a place where the curse is reversed. Church is to be a place where we, we yield our dislike and our, our uh, intolerance for people, where we yield that to bearing with one another in love. Church is a place where we, build our, where we yield our lack of forgiveness to if one has a complaint against another. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Church needs to be a place where our, our selfishness is yielded to contribute to the needs of others. And, and our isolationism is yielded to seek to show hospitality. Church needs to be a place where our dishonor of one another submits to and yields to outdo one another in showing honor. Get Paul, what Paul's saying, it's a competition between me and you. I hope I can honor that person better than you. That's what our honoring one another is supposed to look like. Church is a place where our gossip should be yielded to if you bite and devour one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Church is a place where our anger and rage should be yielded to let all, all, not some, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Church, family, brothers and sisters, that's what should identify us. So that when others come in here, they're looking and saying, whoa, it's different in that place. I want to go back. I want to go back there. You know, it's a reminder. Panina is a reminder that many, time we act, many times we act out of our hurts. You know the saying, hurt people hurt people, right? And, and so I think to some extent we're all hurting, right? We can all say, oh, I have some hurts here and we pity ourselves. Well, that hurt. It's just very easy to allow that hurt to dictate 
our actions, to control our actions, and to make our actions do things that are ungodly. But it's not what God wants for us. Our hurts are never an excuse to hurt somebody else, never an excuse to disregard them, to slight them, to insult them, to ignore them, never an excuse. Our hurts are to be brought to the Lord. And so maybe another application here today is that we examine our hearts again. Not only examine to see if we have conceded to our culture and compromised, but have we given in to our emotions? Have we allowed our likes and dislikes to dictate and to command what we do? So I'm calling us to examine our hearts again and again, invite the Lord into that examination room. Lord, is there something in me that I have against a brother or a sister that's causing me to gossip, to speak ill of them, to smear their testimony or smear their reputation? Is there something in me that's causing me to want to avoid them that makes me want to take vengeance? Oh, Lord, examine my heart. Would you do that with me too? Invite the Lord into that. And finally, we come to Hannah. Oh, Hannah, what a, what a sad lady. Look, at, I pulled out these words from the passage that we, that we just read. These are descriptions of Hannah's state. She is miserable. She wept. She didn't eat. Her heart was grieved. She had bitterness of soul. She wept in anguish. She was afflicted. She was sorrowful in spirit. And she spoke out of an abundance of complaint and grief. Hannah was consumed by her infertility, by her inability to have children. And she had shame with this. Not only the personal shame of personal disappointment of, of you know, not meeting up to womanhood, personal disappointment of, of not meeting up to what her husband expected or disappointment for her family, but she had with her societal shame. Think about this. The Jews knew the Messiah was coming through the seed of a woman. And so if a woman could not bear a child, she was excluded from the promise that God might use her to bring the Messiah. I love this quote from Tim Chester, one of the uh, commentators I'm using. It says, the promise of a savior to Adam and the offspring to Abraham meant people were looking for a savior within Israel. Every new birth raised the question, is this the one? Without children, there was no future for God's people and ultimately no hope for the world. It carried a sense of exclusion from the purpose of God's people. That's the shame that she bore. And you know the thing about all this? God was responsible. This was God's doing. Do you realize that the passage said twice in there that it was the Lord who closed her womb. Whatever medical reasons there might have been, it was the Lord who did it. Wow. Wow. Now, you know, we, we mentioned last week that in Deuteronomy it says that none of God's people, no male or female or animals, will be barren among my people if only they would obey. 
Well, we know we can accept that Israel was disobedient, and so there is some barrenness. But why Hannah? Why Hannah? She was a good person. Why do bad things happen to good people? She didn't deserve it. Why, God? Why did you close her womb? What was your purpose in doing that? And on on top of that, no one could help her. No one could help her. Think about this. Penina was basically saying to Hannah, Hannah, even though your name means favor, God doesn't favor you. He favors me. He gave me children, not you. And think of Elkanah. I mean, what a lug. Really, think about this. Here Hannah is sorry, and he's saying, why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Why is your heart sad? Did he really not know? Seriously, did he really not know? And then watch this, man, because he takes pity for her and turns it right around to him. Am I not good enough for you? Aren't I better than 10 sons? My goodness. Hannah is despairing in spirit, and he's saying, what about me? You know what he's saying. I am the double portion here right? I should be all you need. You should be happy just because I'm in your life, right? Oh, man, man. (laughs) Leave the double portion at home and let's be sensitive to our wives. That double portion of food gave him no license to say all that, but he took it. He took it. And then there's Eli. What, What help was Eli? Eli simply says, what are you, drunk? What's the matter with you, lady? No help. So what was Hannah left to do? Ah, she went to the Lord. She went to the Lord. Unlike Penina, she submitted her shame, her feelings, her rejection. She submitted them to the Lord. She did not allow. She could have been resentful. She could have been hurtful, vengeful. Listen to what this commentator says. She had every reason to be bitter. She was incapable of bearing children. Penina ridiculed her. Elkanah was unable to comfort her. And Eli mistook her motives. Yet rather than capitulate to her emotions, she let her circumstances drive her to prayer. Hannah's profound pain prodded her to an abiding faith which issued forth in earnest prayer. Do you see what she did? She didn't do what Penina did. She took her feelings and brought them to God. And she went to the Lord with humility. Did you notice in her prayer, three times she calls herself God's maid servant. Lord, I'm just a servant. Who am I but just a servant? And did you notice she called the Lord, Lord of hosts? Now, this is the first chapter in the Bible that that title is used. And I want to explain what this means. Lord of hosts, well, your versions may say Lord Almighty, or it may say Lord of armies. Lord of hosts means God is controlling all the armies of Israel. He's controlling all the armies of angels and and spiritual beings, and he's controlling the armies, meaning all the stars and the galaxies that are out there. What's that saying? It's saying that God has every resource available and every power available at his fingertips to do as he pleases. Lord of hosts, she says, I'm your maidservant. That's the God that she's dealing with. And you know what? She even, she's even honest with the Lord. She understood, first of all, that, that he was truly the Lord of hosts, that he was mighty, that he was powerful. And among all that might, all that majesty, all that power, 
She prays with the confidence that he will hear her. Little old Hannah has a prayer. She's bringing it to this mighty God. And he will hear her. He will. And that's for you and me too, isn't it? He is here and he will hear us. He he hears us when we pray. He is not a deaf God. We don't need to arouse him by some great works or anything like that. He hears the prayer of a broken and contrite heart, which is what Hannah had. She not only goes to him with humility, but she goes to him without entitlement. Did you notice? There was none of, God, this is your doing. You did this to me. This is your fault. I don't deserve this. You you messed up, and you've missed the point, Lord. I'm living for you. I deserve better than this. There is none of that in her prayer. None of that at all. Who, who, she understands that, she understands that she lives in a world where difficulty happens and that she was given this infertility and she understands that it was God who gave it to her. I mean, think about what Hannah knows. Hannah knows that God is all-powerful. She knows that he, is, that he is majestic and sovereign. And yet she comes to him and doesn't blame him for what comes upon her. She never questions God's motives. She doesn't question his wisdom. She doesn't question his goodness even. She simply goes to God who caused this pain in her. Now we have to be honest. Hannah herself would have changed it in a minute, right? She does not like her trial. She hates her trial. And you know what? That's true. God doesn't ever call us to like trials, right? We don't have to like the difficulty we're going through. A few years ago, Denise and I were going through, through a trial and, and through that, we were so tempted to try to end that trial fast or to try to fix it or to, to go to somebody for help, you know, go to others to, to get them to fill, fix the problem for us. See, trials are all about trust, trusting God. Am I willing to trust that he's waiting? Am I willing to trust that he is good? Am I willing to trust that this is what he has for me? Who am I to say, God, I need something different than what you have? See, the problem is I don't see what God is doing. And so we have to trust the Lord in our trials, but we never have to like them. It's okay to not like your trials. And then finally, Hannah left God changed. She left God changed. Verse 18, I love verse 18. It says in this, so the woman went on her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So we're talking about the woman who is distressed, she went on her way. The woman who wasn't eating and lost her appetite, ate. The woman who is in severe depression was no longer sad. Well, what did she know? She knew God was sovereign. She knew God had all the resources in the world to change her problem. She knew that that same God would hear her prayer, and she knew she could go to him and pray. But what she didn't know was, would he answer the prayer? And I think if there's anything that really just 
just minister to me this week, it's this. God doesn't have to answer our prayers for him to work in our lives. You see, God changed Hannah. She went to God. She had no idea he was going to answer her prayer and give her the request. But she left a changed woman because she met with the one who could change her. How beautiful that is. When we meet with God, he works in us. He moves in us. He aligns us with his will. So I come back to that opening statement by Dr. Barnhouse. Prayer changes nothing. And I want to say, I disagree. I disagree with that because prayer does change things. Now, I'm not, this is not the sermon where we're going to get into the, the balance of God's sovereignty and our prayers. This is not the, the sermon where we're going to preach about uh, Abraham's prayer for, for uh, uh, yes, for Sodom and Gomorrah and where it looks like God changes his mind. This is not the sermon where I talk about where Moses is going to, to intercede over and over and over again for the Jews and God listens and does it. This is not that sermon. This is the sermon where I say, Prayer changes nothing. No, prayer changes me. That's what God does. He changes me. He works in my heart. Hannah knew. Hannah knew that God would work. She didn't know how, but she knew he would work. And that's what happens when you and I go to God with our trials, with the things, with the struggles. I think about our people. I, I would like to point people out, but I'm not going to. But I think about our people, some who have suffered with diseases for several decades. Some who suffer with the result of bad accidents for several decades. Some who have suffered with infertility. Some who have suffered with poor relationships in their homes. Some who have suffered with financial difficulties. They're suffering throughout this room. Every one of us has something we're suffering in. And I would love to tell you, just pray to God and God's going to give you the answer. No, but what I will tell you is pray to God. He will change you. He will work in you. And that's what we need. God decided to give Hannah a a child, a baby, a son, because he knew it was best for her. But he also knew it was going to work something great for redemptive history. But he might not have done that. He may have chosen another woman. I'm sure there was another woman in that same time period who was praying, God, give me children. And he might not have answered her prayer. Is God still good? Yes, he is. He is. Because God does a good work in us when we come to him and pray. And so I want to close just bringing these three things to us again. And we'll have some of our elders come forward. Elders and wives are going to come forward as prayer counselors today. Uh, When we sing that song of elders and wives, please come forward and be here available because you may want to pray today. You may want to come and deal with the Lord or the Lord has dealt with you on some of these things. So I come back and I, I go ask these questions. Would you ask them with me? Have I compromised in any area of my life? Is there something that needs to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Would you do that today? Don't waste any more time in the nonsense. Come under the blessing of God through obedience. Have I allowed my emotions to lead me to sin? Have I allowed my my dislike or discomfort with somebody to make me act out, out of line with God? If you have, 
Pray about that today. Confess it. Repent, first of all. Repent. Stop doing it. But come to the Lord in prayer. There will be counselors here to pray with you. And then have I come to God with the correct perspective that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord almighty. There is none mightier. And I am the servant. And I don't come questioning his motives, his wisdom or his goodness, but I come and say, Lord, my heart's broken. Change me. Work in my heart. So we're going to stand now together. Prayer counselors, elders, wives, please come forward. Be, be here, ready to pray with anybody who would come forward during our song. The Lord is great. Praise the Lord. His word is good. He is good. The blessing I just like to speak over you over the next few weeks from the Lord says the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord make the light of his countenance shine upon you and give you peace amen